0: Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation, and design all over the world. This show is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. We're a design-led innovation company, partnering with some of the world's smartest companies to help them solve complex challenges and design new futures. I'm your host, Fiona Triarca. So welcome everyone to the Naked Ambition Podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in leadership, innovation, and design all over the world. I'd like to welcome everyone and thank you so much for tuning in live, for those of us who are watching us out there on LinkedIn. Today on the show, I am so excited to be welcoming Victor Perton. He is the founder and he's also the Chief Optimism Officer at the Centre for Optimism. So welcome, Victor.
1: Yeah, it is so good to see you. And you've got the yellow and the orange, the the colours of optimism, and of course, we met For the first time at the Design Awards, and you were actually there as we evolved from the Australian Leadership Project to the Centre for Optimism. So it is. I think you must be my lucky charm. I just think it's wonderful to be with you.
0: It is so good to have you on the show. We've been really closely following the progress as a team at the Centre for Optimism. So I also personally can't think of a time in my lifetime where something like this has been needed more. So it's going to be really exciting to hear about... You know, not just the evolution of the center itself, but about the really important work that you are doing, you know, the case for optimism, and even actually just to give people some really practical tips today on how they can bring more optimism into their lives So, and work, of course. So this is exciting. So just tell us, what do you, what do, you do at the Centre for Optimism, Victor? Fundamentally, those
1: who can see on video, uh, we ask one question, what makes you optimistic? Mm-hmm. So we're not like the, the people, you know, at the Centre for Progress and the like, say so you ought to be optimistic because of the world economy or because of leadership or, um, you know, the, 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 the fight against COVID. We actually recognise that everyone has to make their own case for optimism. Um, you know, it comes from the heart or it comes from belief in God or mankind or science or life experience. And we've interviewed 12,000 people, Fiona, and only eight of the answers are identical. So that's what we do. But we ask that question in many places. We've asked that question of prisoners in jail. Uh, we've asked it of doctors in ED in hospitals. Yesterday, we were working with a mental health organisation helping their mental health workers uh, find what made them optimistic. And yesterday, we were um, almost in Saint-Tropez via Zoom helping the Professional Women's Network uncover what makes them optimistic. And so that's our fundamental. You know, we talk about the science, we talk about why it's good for innovation, why it's good for leadership. But fundamentally, what we encourage people to do is to ask themselves and to ask others what makes them optimistic. And in fact, yesterday I was on a call with two leaders um, of Australia and New Zealand, and they were talking about optimism and why... Australians and New Zealanders should be optimistic. And I said to them, Dominic Barton, the head of McKinsey, said to me, every great leader has to be infectiously optimistic, but it's not the big man or woman standing at the podium, it's the person who can unlock the optimism in the team, Mm -hmm. from the youngest to the oldest, from the least experienced to the most experienced. And, Fiona, I know you lead with optimism, so may I ask you, what makes you optimistic?
0: Mm, I love this, turning the table so early in the conversation as well, Victor. This was really so interesting as an exercise to do, can I first of all say, so we'll just know, you did give me a a little warning, we were going to be asked this. So, you know, in design thinking, there are seven key mindsets and one of them is optimism. So, you know, empathy, experimentation, iteration, all of these, you know, mindsets that we, we always ask The designers that we're working with and ourselves as designers and people that we're training to bring optimism with them. But even that we talk about this all the time, I think even reflecting on this from a personal perspective was um, challenging, but also just gave me a, a really positive outlook to the day. I kept on coming back to you know what you know what are and there was lots of them. You know I'm not going to reel them off and take take the whole show here but
1: um, go on take the whole <laughs> take show. The show this
0: is my optimism show. So I have to say I think the things that I am most optimistic about and staying on the topics that you know we lead with and we talk about and practice, which is around innovation, I am actually really optimistic about the innovation ecosystem here in Australia and even the progress that we have made in the last 12 months. 12 months on a few fronts. I think, you know, of, of all the challenges that COVID has brought, it has broken down a lot of walls between potential collaborators. So we are seeing, you know, agencies collaborate with agencies, organisations collaborating with other organisations, knowledge sharing happening like we haven't seen it before across borders, across sectors, across industries, just a real willingness to, be really generous with knowledge, which is something that you always hope for in this um, discipline, but you don't necessarily always see. So that is something that I'm incredibly optimistic about, and I think we're only just at the tip of the iceberg for the potential that could come from a more open innovation ecosystem on one front. And then in a more sort of specific aspect as well, I'm really excited about some of the, you know, the the growth in our organisations and the adoption of, you know, this need for progression where before we saw, you know, in the nicest possible way, a bit of apathy sometimes um, or just hesitance of kind of, you know, how? urgent is this when it comes to digital transformation and the kinds of things that I might need to do in my organisation, whereas now we've seen this real urgency um, for good or bad, but people know this is work that needs to be done. And it's it's really, and I feel really fortunate to be in an industry that is now, you know, at. Um, I guess the epicenter of a lot of this change and people really wanting to drive it. So I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be in this and even just to bring it back to optimism. I also think it's a it's a big source for, of optimism. you know, you talk a lot about leadership in Australia and the need for optimism in leadership. and I think for our innovation leaders, there's a lot to be optimistic about.
1: Well, as you know, I mean you, it's almost impossible for the pessimist to be an innovator. Yes, The science says that the pessimist is ground down by what went wrong, who's at fault, I'm at fault, mm. and and the, the design process is stifled, the innovation process is stifled, whereas the optimist uh, keeps going. And, and even last weekend in the Australian newspaper, they were reviewing Dyson's autobiography. And, of course, that marvellous statistic that he uses 5,000 iterations of the bagless vacuum cleaner before he achieved instant commercial success. And I think that's the mindset of the innovator. And you exemplify it. You know, you're colourful. You're interested in people. John Hagel, who's on our board, you know, the the ex-head of the Deloitte Centre for the Edge, talks about the passion of the explorer, Mm -hmm. um, the value of curiosity. And, And, again, you exemplify all of those things, Fiona.
0: Oh, that's nice of you to say. Thank you, Victor. I think as well there's there's something you've touched on as well there about um, it'd be good to get your perspective on this because, you know, sometimes when we talk about optimism from the perspectives of design and innovation, people are like, oh, well, that's not just, you know, they think it just means... Almost Pollyanna. blind optimism. Oh, God,
1: exactly. Fiona, you look like Pollyanna, Pollyanna. from the
0: movies. Yes, exactly. So it's, you know, we're not talking about blind optimism. We're talking about intelligent optimism. And what you've just spoken about there with Dyson and that iterative process is about getting a little bit more evidence with every single move. So is there... You know, you know what, what is your perspective on that intelligent optimism? Is that something you get asked about a lot when you're talking about, you know, asking people what makes them optimistic? What do you think? Yeah,
1: and, and we've actually all, we've almost got a factional divide in the Centre for Optimism now. Mm-hmm. I've got a group of, of women in particular who say, no, there's nothing wrong with being a Pollyanna. Right. And we're actually going to have an event. I'd I'd love you to help us design it called Mm. In Defence of Pollyanna, because (laughs) when you read some of the great designers, um, they actually talk about that insatiable optimism. Mm. What we foster at the Centre for Optimism is realistic optimism, Mm. um, infectious. And it comes partly from that earlier leadership discussion. You know, Dominic Barton, who I quoted earlier, Mm. who's now the Canadian ambassador to China, Every great leader he's ever met is infectiously optimistic. Um, Bob Iger, who headed up Disney and, and brought Disney back to its portions, um, published his autobiography last year with 10 features of 2020's leadership. Well, because I'm quoting it, it won't be hard to guess what it is. Realistic and infectiously optimistic leadership. And the, the medical evidence is there, and we've been doing a lot of stuff in the medical profession recently, Um Three years ago, um, Harvard, the American military, and Boston University produced a report that said that healthy longevity, living to 85, they did a study. They assumed it would be wealth, income, genetics, geography, confounded them. The trait most associated with healthy longevity is optimism. Mm-hmm. And there was a study about the same time by the Italians of people who are still active in village or civic life at the age of 100. And, again, the two traits were, and you exemplify these, optimism and purpose. Mm. Now, the American College of Cardiology and Heart Association reported in January of this year to say not only is optimism the key trait in longevity, it's actually most protective in every mortality, heart disease, cancer, Dementia, the list goes on. And for doctors, of course, it's most predictive of recovery. Mm-hmm. And then Monash University this month has published a study replicating that study. But actually, coming back to your point on unrealistic optimism, the Monash study says if you're unrealistically optimistic, you know, if you set yourself up for disappointment, mm-hmm. that you may, in fact, have some of those health um, impacts. That pessimism renders. And and the reason that pessimism makes you sicker, um, you probably live a shorter time, is because of the anxiety, the depression, the poor sleep. It attacks the arteries, it attacks the body organs. And so, you know, there's a strong rap from the medical profession For intervention to help make people more optimistic. And we had Lucy Brogdon on last week. We had a big event. Lucy's the head of the National Mental Health Commission, and Mm. she is just an advocate for optimism and helping young people to be more optimistic. And I was lucky enough three weeks ago, Fiona, to be in a small audience with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama, it was an audience, he was 8 o'clock in the morning, so for me it was okay, it was 12.30 Aussie time. Yeah. But there was an English woman on, it must have been 3.30 in the morning, and she asked this sour question, which was, oh, you know, teenagers must be suffering, what will we do, Dalai Lama? And he looked at her and he assumed she was a mother or grandmother. He said, for teenagers, the most important thing is hope and optimism, mm-hmm. and the most important duty for mothers and grandmothers is to help those teenagers maintain their optimism and hope through the pandemic and beyond. Mm -hmm. And on Friday, Fiona, we held the Nelson Mandela Youth Leadership Summit. And for the last half hour, we just asked these 16-year-olds what makes them optimistic and what have they learnt about their leadership. It is one of the most inspiring bits of video that we have ever published. Adults are inspired by these 16-year-olds committing to the future. And UNICEF, What are in they GAC saying? Suggests, Can you
0: tell us? What are the
1: 16-year-olds saying? Oh, the, the variety is astonishing. One kid opened up with, look, it's just fantastic to be in this conference and to hear other young people. The future is bright.
0: Mm.
1: You know, just listening to them. And so, you know, the more you ask that question, what makes you optimistic? In any audience, the more you will be uplifted and the more the people you ask will be uplifted. Now, I've got several boards now and executive meetings. Every three months, they've got rid of that stupid Australian board question, which is, what's keeping you awake at night? (laughs) To which I have always responded, nothing. I hit the pillow at 10 o'clock, I go to sleep. But to ask a board or an exec meeting or a team meeting every three months or so, what's making you optimistic um, it lifts the whole meeting. And of course, you'll find it's not work. You know it's pets, it's family, yeah. it's gardening, um but you learn a lot about your colleagues when you ask them that question.
0: Mm, super varied. This is I'm glad you've started with some of the science that's attached to optimism and the science backing optimism. What are some of those techniques and like what are the sorts of things that that you talk about? For people, if anyone is tuning into this now, sort of 12.30 on a Wednesday, they're not feeling particularly (laughs) optimistic. They're like, look, this guy's been on it for a while. What's this guy? What's this guy on? on?" Yeah, you know, we've heard... um, you know, Lucy from the Mental Health, sorry, I've got to get Lucy's name correct. Who was it, Lucy? What What are they talking about when it comes to sort of Mental Health Australia and techniques for becoming more optimistic? Can you share some of those, Victor? Yeah,
1: we're probably the leaders um, in yeah. this space now. The first one is really simple. It's just smile at people more. Mm. If you're on a Zoom call, are the lips curled up? Um, the Dalai Lama in, in his audience said, my secret for success is... Every person I walk past, I smile and say hello. Mm. Simple, but every interaction you lift people. Um, laughter. Uh, we actually um, almost even our most serious events now. We actually end with a minute of yoga laughter, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, you'd be amazed. I, I did an event with these with crusty sort of conservative gentlemen the other day, and the chairman of meetings look. I don't think they're ready for this, and I said. Okay, can you all let your inhibitions go? And they did. And so you had 50 people on the screen laughing, smiling. So laughter's a big one. Yeah. Number three, you know, to the extent your audience is Australian and Irish and French and English, one of the questions that is asked in Australia and France is, hello, how are you? 65% of people answer not bad or not too bad. And do we ever say, oh, my God, what's wrong? You know, why is it it bad? No, we don't. So it's a wasted question and a wasted answer. So I'd like all of your listeners today to have just tried this experiment for the rest of the day and if they're up to it the rest of the week. And it's get rid of how are you and replace it with, oh, what's been the best thing in your day? Or might be a Friday, what's been the best thing in your week? Now, people will stare at you. Right, They will actually stop because they're so used to, hello, how are you? You sound like you're speaking in gibberish. You might have to repeat it. Mm. That's been the best thing in your day. 80% of the time, you will get an answer of hope and optimism. And even today in the supermarket, the guy in the supermarket, because my mask has, what makes you optimistic? Um, And he said, oh, what do you do? And I said this. I said, why don't you try this for the rest of the day and we'll start off with the next person in the queue. Because that person just lit up at being asked the question, mm. um, and we did it in prison. It was so effective; uh, it turned the power balance between the prisoners and the warders. So instead of this sort of morose interaction, suddenly you've got the the prisoner saying, "At water, Fiona, hi, Fiona. What's the best thing in your day? Well, of course, the water can't give an aggressive, negative response." It puts you on the spot to be positive. And the result of that was we were asked to do a half day workshop with the general managers of prisons. Another one that's really useful, and this one people might want to take a few notes, but it's on our website. The Vienna Medical School did a study last year on sleep and optimism. So it won't surprise you. You know, you sleep better if you're an optimist. Um, Anyone who's married to a man will know that they must all be optimists because the moment you want to talk to them, they've fallen asleep. Um, And, of course, more sleep makes you more optimistic. But their study showed that the most effective intervention for optimism, if you really want to do some homework, is a thing called my best self. And so you take just a piece of paper or a pad Take a cup of tea or coffee or a drink and spend five minutes imagining yourself, this will be easy for you, you've got a great imagination, um, in five years hence. Everything going right in work, romance, family, everything. And you sit down for 10 minutes and you write about a day in your life. And then when you finish writing and keep it to 10 minutes, best to do it handwriting, you then go for a walk or... Again, have a cup of tea or coffee and just daydream about that day in your life in five years hence. And if you do that once every three months, once every six months, um, it it is guaranteed to make you more optimistic and to make the people around you more optimistic. And then the other one that's a bit of a discipline, do you keep a gratitude journal, Fiona? I do, yeah. tell Tell the audience how you use it.
0: So mine's a bit of a fusion between morning pages, which is yep. the Julia Cameron technique from The artist Way, which is just three pages of stream of consciousness. You just literally write whatever. It's kind of the premise behind it is getting uh, your just all of that junk that's kind of in your head overnight and the thoughts and its fears and sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's not. So usually get that out. And then I focus on the things that I'm really grateful for. And then I complete a page of I am. So these are sort of vision statements, future vision statements. So they're things that I want to be or maybe things that I already am. But I, you know, it could be I am. Um, You know, I am a kind mother, which obviously I hope I am, but at the moment right now in homeschooling and toddlers at home and these kinds of things, you know, sometimes you've had just outbursts and it's like, oh, you know, so my morning pages might have been about guilt. do with something like that so it can be those sorts of things it's you know often really it's business related things it'll be things about leadership and my team and the kind of aspirational things but by writing that i am it's a really powerful way to do exactly what you're saying to bring that vision of the future into today and it makes you more conscious about everything the decisions i make in that day the forward planning that we do strategically yeah
1: That's brilliant because, in fact, there's a bit of a debate about whether you do these things every day or not. And I recently had that debate with an English university that was doing the my best self with their students every day. And I'm saying, no, 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 the science says quarterly or six monthly. So Mm -hmm. it's fascinating you do it every day. Um, I I think what what you've just done is is what you've just talked about is just utterly brilliant. So the the classic gratitude journal um, Mm -hmm. is you have a, a, a booklet by your bed um, you know, it can be beautiful. It can be pretty. It can be a leather bound. And just at the end of the day, as you sort of settling down in bed, you write down just one sentence or two: the three best things in the day. And it can be that the children were really good today, or the sun was out, or my yeah. God, I had this brilliant meeting and we've sold a, a million dollars worth of innovation to someone. And you know, it, it, you. It, one way to involve partner is, in fact, to say, oh, honey, I'm you know, writing, you know, three things. What's your best thing that I can add to it? And it's a way of lifting their spirits. The trick with the gratitude journal is that it's the first thing in the morning. You should not wake up to the news. You should not wake up to negative thoughts. So you take your gratitude journal and either sitting on the toilet or having a coffee or a tea, you read back yesterday's gratitude. And, of course, if you're on the toilet for a little while longer, you might flick back two or three days, and it just lifts you. And the scientific evidence out of the University of Pennsylvania says that for most people it's better than antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. It it actually lifts people. And and for those of us, I've got teenage kids, so um, we'll often do the three best things at the end of dinner, and the kids know that they can't leave. But it's this cycle of reflecting on what was good, And then the next morning, uh, recalling that. But I love what you talked about. We did an event for Jewish care the other day. We had an emergency call because, of course, the Jewish community couldn't go to synagogue, couldn't have family gatherings during New Year. And uh, so the rabbi came on and and did our blessing. And it was the most inspiring blessing because he shared his morning prayer which is very similar to what you've just been talking about, Fiona. And for those of of those listening to us who like horror, you know, Stephen King's books or Stephen King's movies, Stephen King is like Tolstoy. He writes four hours a day, but his practice before he gets out of bed is to spend five minutes thinking about what he's grateful for. So it's a very powerful formula Mm -hmm. for success. And I think you've nailed it in your practices, Fiona.
0: Positive mindset. I think Stephen King would need that as well because he's got to go to some pretty dark places for the rest of the day.
1: Well, talk about love dark us. places. The other thing that we would strongly recommend is a news diet.
0: Mm. Right, you switch
1: on the news today; it's love like a board of COVID. Mm. Right, and do I live in Melbourne? I mean, I I, I love the people of Wilcannia and you know, I've had great hospitality there, but. To lead my news in Melbourne with one case of COVID in Mm Wilcannia seems to me to really be doom scrolling. So we say for the intelligent professional, you need to still be in touch with the news 15 minutes in the morning max, 15 minutes in the evening max. Although I've got a friend who is a very wealthy businessman, he stopped watching the news
0: Mm.
1: in 9-11. He found it so horrific that he stopped watching the news. And he says, look, I yeah, you know, friends tell me what's going on. You pick it up. Mm. I'm completely informed, but I don't let the news editors destroy my understanding of the world. And um, yeah, you know, for people who want a really actually design thinking book on this, it's Rosling's Factfulness. Mm. You know, and he demonstrates through a series of questions how most people have got too bleak a view of the world. So my recommendation to people is turn off the news. Certainly don't start off with it in the morning. I use a lot of Google alerts, um, so I'm getting the news on what I want. And the really interesting thing for people who are on social media, you know, the conventional media keeps saying, oh, gosh, social media is such a negative force. But if you're like me and you're always looking for optimism and you're connected to positive people, the algorithm learns that. Mm. So my Twitter is full of positive stuff. My Facebook is full of joyous stuff. Mm. My LinkedIn is the stories of hope and success. So if you set it up as a practice, I'm not going to let the editor of ABC News or the editor of Channel 7 News, determine my view of the world, Mm -hmm. you will live healthier and happier. And then the other trick is exactly as you do, Fiona. It's spreading the stories of success. You know, it's that client you meet who doesn't know how to tell their story to the world or it's a designer with some fantastic new idea or an innovator The more you can spread that using LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I'm still not adept at TikTok, although I had it. actually love this, I did um, a three-day event with innovation students at the University of Melbourne, and they gave us three innovation ideas for the Centre for Optimism. One of them, not hard to (laughs) guess. They were 20 year olds. (laughs) I (laughs) said, I've got to become adept at TikTok. So I was going to say, it's
0: pretty good you're still on Instagram and Facebooks and news diets. I went on a, and this was for mental health and optimism, a social media diet. So I'm off. I can't stand Facebook, but only minimal, minimal Instagram as well, I think. Some people, so I think that's, I love that tip as well about, you know, curating your news, being very careful about those sources, thinking about how much time you spend doing it because doing scrolling, we know, is a, you know, it's a big challenge for a lot of people and it's easy to kind of fall down into that hole. So I think that's a great tip as well. Well,
1: particularly you, right? I mean, you, you've got, you know, particularly yellow background, colourful clothes. a a wonderful smile the more you do short videos on LinkedIn on Twitter on Facebook the more you will lift people Mm. so we're doing this longer broadcast but I think a lot more people will be watching you and me you know with that you know your discussion on your morning practice I mean it's a it's a masterclass You know, what makes you optimistic? It's a masterclass Mm. in in three minutes. And that's the stuff that that people are absorbing. And the more you and I can do that on Facebook. On Facebook now, I don't tend to write stuff. I Mm. scroll down and and I've got a little um, design of of me saying thank you and congratulations and happy birthday. So I just click Mm. um, on the little avatar.
0: Just turn the tide a little bit as well. I mean, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it just needs a bit more positivity on there. That might get us back on. Tell us. um, I I, I do really want to talk about your interactions with leaders around optimism as well, because you have spoken about a few high-profile leaders that that really are saying, you know, this is what we need. You know, for this is what we need. For Australian leadership, this is what we mean for international leadership. You came from a background in government. Can you talk to me about what you would love to see from our leaders in a government perspective and optimism? Are you yes. trying to influence there as well, or is it just in enterprise? Yeah, it's interesting.
1: No, no, and, and the, what's really interesting is if you start any conference with optimism, people will copy you. Um, so I, I did a big conference. Um, for a procurement organisation, and um, there was a very senior military officer who was two speakers after me. He had never used the word optimism before in a speech. He used it five times. And so for government, the thing that they need to be reminded of is that optimism doesn't come, as Dominic Barton says, from the big speech at the front. So in the 12,000 expressions of optimism we've got, less than 1% of people refer to government or the economy. And so yesterday I was really fortunate. I was on a a small round table with two very senior um, government officials from Australia and New Zealand. And both of them had talked about optimism and being optimistic. And I put that to them. It's lucky enough to be the first question. Mm. And I said, look, Dominic Barton says... It's not enough to give the big speech from the front. So in Australia and New Zealand, over the last 20 years, there's been a reduction in personal optimism. There's been a doubling in medication for anxiety and depression. Mm. So something's going wrong. So what are you guys going to do to help lift optimism in the citizenry? What are you going to do to lift the optimism in your departmental teams? fascinating in a what was a relatively short round table, each of them spent almost 10 minutes answering that question. So in government now, one of the things that has happened as an adverse effect of freedom of information and as an adverse effect of five-year head of department contracts is that we know, I mean, there was probably no golden age. I mean, Stephen Pinker says, if you remember the good old days, you've got a bad memory. Yeah. So, but but that notion of the fearless, independent public service has gone because so much of the time, instead of the old fashioned English way, you know, where if something went wrong in the department, the minister would resign, you know, three months later, they would be brought back. Mm -hmm. These days, it's the public servant who's singled out for blame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, uh, we live in Melbourne, you know, the hotel quarantine debacle, you know, who resigned? It was the public servants. You know, it was not the, the ministers who were held to account. Yeah. And, and so what you've got now in the public service, particularly in your area of innovation and design thinking, is a fear of the new. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a fear of doing something that will be seen as a mistake. So unlike Dyson, who could have 5,000 goes, freedom of information, they find out you got it wrong the first time and you're the most stupid public servant in the history of man.
0: Mm.
1: And, and so in government, what we've got to do is somehow help those public servants to become more optimistic. And I was really honoured on on um, R U OK? Day that one of the Victorian government departments got me to come back and do a second session
0: mm.
1: with their staff. And it was the same conversation we're having now and those tools for helping make yourself more optimistic. So for government, my plea is Keep doing the great speeches with I am optimistic or you should be optimistic, but spend more time asking your teams what makes them optimistic and instilling optimism in them. Mm -hmm. And then for the public, it's clarity. You know, the government doesn't, in Australia, people don't like thinking about government. You know, they want to go surfing. They want to go running on Bondi Beach. They want to go running at Port Melbourne. They want to go to a cafe. They want to talk joyous things. They don't want to worry about government. So, um, Gladys Berejiklian the other day announced she was no longer going to do daily COVID uh, press conference. And I thought, fantastic. Mm. I mean, you know, we were at school, we all read George Orwell's 1984. And, and do you remember the character, the evil government character, is Big Brother, mm. who is the head of Oceania, who is on television all the time? Well, if you switch on ABC News Channel now, it's not just Morrison, you've got.
0: We um, are living uh, in a dystopia.
1: And yeah. And, and so yes. we're almost living in this dystopian world. Mm. And so I'd say to the leaders follow Gladys. Get off television, put your chief medical officer on once a week, put out a press release. All the data's there, but don't spend your time communicating through the filter of a group of 20 people who are bored stiff after their 300th COVID press conference and are just there for the sport. All they want to get from the minister is a mistake or. Oh, gosh, Gladys, Um, Anastasia said this about you. What do you say? Mm. So all they're after is this he said, she said. And so for me, it's actually say less, but ask more questions would be really important for people in government. And then the same in corporate Australia. Um, PR has, well, journalism has been captured by pessimists, right? I've, I've had so many... ABC journalists, amongst others, complain to me that the stories they file get junked because it goes for eight minutes on COVID and there's no room for innovation. There's no oh, room yeah.
0: for he a new says. product. Yeah.
1: And, and so, you know, we've got to get around that. And so, but what happens is that corporations now have PR departments who are trying to get the boss on the news. So they express stuff in the negative. Mm. And so we get so much negative crap um, in the press releases from Australian corporates. Uh, the other day, one, one of the, the leaders um, was saying, oh, gosh, I see a collapse in hope and optimism around me. So I rang his chief, well, I contacted his chief of staff and I said, well, do you need us to come in and do something yeah. for him?
0: But that's not going to help you." <laughs> I mean, there's connections that I'm making as you're just talking about that. And I think like the way I've phrased that question as well about, you know, what, how can our government, or how can we get this message through to government around a lot of this daily messaging, particularly that we're getting about being more optimistic. And it's almost just triggered a bit of a light bulb that this, you know, it, it is in its essence, actually really critically a grassroots kind of movement, that if that's what people want and are asking for then we're going to start to see the message change and we actually even did last week where you know we had 50 odd of Australia's biggest businesses or Victoria's biggest businesses putting notices in the paper and saying we need more hope we need messages of hope and we need this is and then all of a sudden the narrative you did see actually shift once we started asking for that hope as a collective rather than expecting it to change necessarily from the top so that's um yeah I mean more a comment than a question but it is just something that that I think does make this work even more important and even just for for everyone out there thinking about the impact that they can have it's potentially enormous even at the individual level.
1: Can I share a story with you Mm -hmm. um so earlier in the year I drove through a town called Caniva And I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a small town on the border with South Australia. And, of course, you know, with COVID shutdowns, they can't cross the border to do business. There's no traffic on the highway, so all the cafes and the like, three-quarters of their business is gone. Uh, Their railway station was burnt down in an arson attack. The last bank branch is closing. The servo was going to close and the community bought it. There are empty shops, there's an EPA cleanup, there's all sorts of things. And you think, oh, my gosh, you know, what hope are these people got? But I stayed overnight and there was a young Indian entrepreneur who'd taken over the motel and he was renovating it. And across the road at the commercial hotel, there was a parachute instructor who'd always wanted to be a publican and he's renovating the pub. And someone else has taken over the main cafe and is turning it into a centre. And I went door knocking. Everyone knew I'd been around because the orange Jeep was parked on their corner. I've got an
0: orange Jeep.
1: I've got an orange Jeep. (laughs) And knocking on people's doors. Only one person sort of slammed the door in my face. And the next morning we did a morning coffee for the townspeople wanted to come along. And there was a a new guy there who'd moved from another town and was a vegetarian chef. Guess what? He's now got a job part-time cooking in the pub. Another guy who was a gardener has now joined the land care group. Now, this was the ultimate in grassroots. This is knocking on people's doors. And then um, we'd organise that they'd have a town dinner on what makes them optimistic. Well, of course, there was a COVID shutdown, so the guest speaker couldn't get there, namely me. And so I said, well, I trust you guys. You do it. They had 12 guest speakers. They had 15% of the town turn up for a town dinner, and they declared themselves to be the most optimistic town in Australia. Now, there was no politician there. There was no government official in the room. This was the people declaring themselves to go ahead. And I don't know if you've ever read Jim Fallows, the uh, writer in The Atlantic. He and his wife did a project last year on the, in fact, might have been the year before that, on the areas in America that had most recovered from the GFC. And what he found was that in all of the places that were growing and doing new things, a la Fiona, um, is it was a group of people like you and me, like those people in Caniva. And there was some help from local government, you know, the mayor or the like, tiny bit of help from state government, but the American federal government was completely absent. Mm -hmm. And and so it's exactly as you say, Fiona, if we want to make this happen, we've got to do it. And Personally, um, you know, my mum died last year in October. She lived to 92. And a week before she died, she said to me, you've done all sorts of amazing things in your work and career, Victor, but nothing I have seen matches the joy you're bringing people asking that question. Uh, So she lived to 92. She was still working until a few months before she died. And at her funeral, I said, look, you know, what choice do I have? Mum said, this is the most important thing I've ever done. I'm going to keep doing it. And I, you know, I, I stop in alleyways, people smoking, and ask them that question. I've asked women digging ditches in India. Yeah, we've asked the president of Taiwan. We've asked the prime minister of Papua New Guinea. But some of the most resonant answers and the most infectious people a people digging ditches in India mm. um, and, and a smoker in an alleyway in Melbourne.
0: So good, Victor. What has been the most surprising answer? Can you remember any of the most surprising answers to this question?
1: Oh, not so surprising, but I think evocative. Can you imagine mm. being Prime Minister of Papua New
0: Guinea?
1: Mm. And those who study. And, and he said to me, Marape said, You know, you can only, you know, do this sort of job if you are an optimist, if you can believe in a better outcome. One of my favourites is another business leader, Mick Farrell, you know, the head of ResMed. Do you know what ResMed does? No. It's the marriage-saving company of the world.
0: Really? They make
1: a thing called CPAP machines. Mm -hmm. And for men and women who snore, you wear a little mask and it pumps air when you're about to snore and you stop snoring. Mm, And, of course, many marriages are broken. Many people move to separate bedrooms over Mm -hmm. snoring. And Mick Farrell, it's a company that grew, started in Melbourne with a capital of a million. It's now billions and headquartered in San Diego. And Mick Farrell said to me, you can only run a business in the med tech innovation space if you are an infectious optimism, but it's an optimism um, rooted in reality. Good strategy, good business plan, and good oh shit plan. Mm. So I think, you know, that sort of, you know, really throws it. But, of course, you do. I mean, the other day when I was doing that door knocking in Caniva, you know, I came across an old man, well, I'm an old man too, but an older man um, walking down the street, and I said, what makes you optimistic? And he looked at me So I'm a pessimist. <laughs> and he spent three minutes telling me of the benefits of pessimism and not being disappointed. And then he grinned and he said, nah, you couldn't live here if you're a pessimist. So you get those lovely, funny yeah. answers from people too. But, but try it, Fiona. I, oh, actually, I'll tell you a funny one we did um, with a company that wanted to get people back in the office. And, you know, no one was wanting to come back to the office. So we did one of these roundtables and I asked everyone what makes you optimistic. And this lady said, well, tell you what makes me optimistic. It's my garden. And my pets. And of course, the boss is already immediately thinking this woman doesn't want to come back to work. <laughs> and so I said, What are your pets? And she said, Oh, I've got a duck, a canary, and a rabbit. And I said, Does your rabbit come inside like ours does? She said, Does yours watch television too? Well, of course, everyone burst out laughing. And of course, as a team meeting, mm. um, you know, you know more about your colleagues. And and the boss said to me, He said, Oh, God, I. I don't think I'm going to try and lift spirits by talking about the latest piece of corporate policy or how we're going on a project. I actually think I'm going to ask them stuff that's more personal.
0: Yeah. This is a great one as well because we are, you know, and even in the framing, you just mentioned Are You Okay Day last year, um, last week rather, and I think a lot of us, you know, would have noticed the difference even, you know, on platforms like LinkedIn but even in conversations, just the shift of how how much more normal asking those questions have become and how much, you know, again, it's we're hearing this so much, I don't need to labour it, but, you know, our private lives and our work lives becoming one and, you know, the glimpse that we're getting into, into each other's, you know, real selves. So all of that talk about authentic leadership and bringing your whole self to work has also been catalyzed through this whole process. But I think what you're talking about, here is really interesting, you know, and something to think about even if you've got any any specific tips as well for leaders in generating those kinds of conversations. Like you've talked about rather than just the how are you to the team, but, but if everyone is sharing so much of themselves, even sometimes I can see asking that are you okay question, while it's important, it does... You know, again, we do, we can be perpetuating sometimes some negativity, you know, and even if people don't want to, and and I think that's why I want to be really careful about this because I think sometimes you've got to to reach, we do need to reach out more and we do need to recognise when people want that help and it's not, we don't want, we're not talking about optimism, you know, um, again, the Pollyanna effect that we're telling everyone you've got to be optimistic and you can't you know, ever have a bad day or any of these sorts of things, but at the same time by by perpetuating that message of, you know, everyone must have a problem. It's like you, you almost, and I've been in situations and calls where it's kind of like, oh, do I have to kind of come up with yeah. a big share, you know, that's, that's a bit dramatic or something, you know, where... Is that and
1: there's too many retreats like that, yes, you know? Where, and I
0: think are we erring a bit more to that? Yeah. And what are, you know, so I guess so that leaders have both in their toolkit and team members have both in their toolkit, what are sort of some of the ways that we can bring the conversation back when we need to to things that make us more optimistic?
1: A classic example, I'll tell a story first and then come back to, to exactly what they can do. Um, one of my children is at a school and there was this breathless announcement from the school that they'd been asked to take part in a mental health program. But it wasn't a mental health program, it was a mental ill health program. i, I looked at the surveys. Eight of the surveys were asking the children what they were anxious about, yes. what they were depressed about and and for somehow in this country mental health is now equated with mental ill health so as opposed okay. to asking the questions that lift people so into that toolkit so number one for for the boss the director the head of a committee is every 3 months to ask that question yeah what makes you optimistic and to get rid of those stupid you know, what's keeping you awake at night, anxiety questions. The second one, I actually had a, an MD of a very interesting company, again, ask for that practicality of how do I deal with the negative person around the board table? Because it only takes one to stuff up the room. that's why we say surround yourself with optimists, um, like Twiggy Forrester's done. He says he can hire the pessimist by the hour. Mm. from law firms yeah. and accounting firms, right? He wants people who can look opportunity. So I said to, to this particular MD, I'd, I'd love you to try and experiment for a month to get rid of the word but or however and any synonyms and replace the swear jar at work with the but jar. So it's, there's a science to it called appreciative inquiry, yeah, which comes out of Harvard, mm-hmm. and, and essentially, as I always summarise it to people, it's getting rid of the word but and replacing it with and. Mm. So even if you're at a design meeting of the like and you think, oh my God, this guy is spaced out, you say and and you can you know use yes, and, and, and in all sorts of yes. ways.
0: So we do in design, it's an improv technique, so derivative of all the things that you're talking about as well. So rather than no but, which is you know, or yeah, nah, which is actually what we tend to say in Australia, which is the same thing. Yeah, you can
1: add nah. that to my toolkit. Yeah, yeah, nah.
0: Exactly. So no buts and yes and, replacing your no know, buts with your yes and. It's exactly yeah, and those that is about building on each other's ideas. You know, and it's also, I mean, because this is this has got to be. We need a few disclaimers here as well because there's a time and a place for that kind of thinking. You know, this is divergent, this is generative thinking where we do need to go broad and, you know, there are times in business where you kind of do want someone in the room to put on a black hat and tell us, you know, we do want to go, what are the risks here and what may go wrong? So we're not discounting any of that. But but too often, I agree, people default to that and sometimes it's just I often find it happens where if there's a room full of especially senior people, and they feel like they haven't made a contribution and they have to make a contribution, so it will tend to be a negative one, just to just to sort of put something in there, you know, which is something that I think we probably all have a tendency to do. So, those techniques are great.
1: And yeah. and, and I think you know, one of the questions that your team sent sent me ahead of this time is is what are the trends? Mm. And you know, in Australia. Um, the tendency has been to negative governance. So we are up to here with risk documents, right? And, and one of the things I've really worked on hard in the organisations I work with is making sure that risk documents include positive risk as well as negative risk. Yeah, so if you've got red, orange and green, mm. what about blue for opportunity or yellow, as you've got there, Yeah. Um, for opportunity? Yeah. And so, um, and and so, I've, I'm actually been asked to to work on a conference on positive governance. Yeah. And, funnily enough, by coincidence, the next day I was talking to another organisation that's working on inducting new directors, and they want me in to talk about positive governance. Mm. So I think if you want to get ahead of the trend, Fiona. Positive governance, I reckon, is going to be one of the big things of the next 20 years yeah. because if you look at all of the director education in Victoria and, and in Australia at the moment, it's incredibly negative. Yeah. Negative risk orientated. Yeah. Compliance orientated. And Gonski, you know, who was chairman of the <laughs> ANZ, I mean, he actually made a speech where he talked about Australian boards being completely focused on negative risk and not enough on opportunity. Mm. And as a friend of mine said recently, he actually did a pitch to one of the senior chairs in Australia saying, well, what are you doing at the board for innovation? And and this chairman said, oh, we don't have to worry about that. That's for management. Well, why? Yeah. Why do boards have to look at the negative stuff and not the positive stuff? And one of the boards I'm on... We now have, twice a year, a look at the innovation pipeline and both what has been accepted and what's been knocked back.
0: Well, it's the best place groups to be looking at innovation opportunities with the diversity of the perspectives ideally that they're bringing and the breadth of experience that is exactly where innovation should begin in a lot of cases, or at least boards be open to this and to be having those conversations, yeah. But you have to have a I mean, that's super old-school thinking, yeah. I mean, you need, but obviously, your real yeah. innovation functions inside an organisation and you need a supportive CEO, I'm about all of those things, but in the best organisations, the most innovative organisations, boards, innovation, organisations, innovation would always be on the agenda when it comes to boards.
1: Uh, but you need yeah. time. Yeah. right. It's conversational. You know, that stupid Australian expression, you know, a quick meeting is a good meeting. Mm. Not for this sort of stuff. You know, if you're doing strategy, you're doing innovation, you want the board members to put away their, oh, God, I'll be ridiculous if I suggest this. Or everyone's going to look at me strangely. You've actually got to let them Mm. let their inhibitions off. One of the things we do even in our most serious meetings at the Centre for Optimism, is seven times out of ten now uh, we will end with a minute of laughter. Right? It's it's laughter yoga. And one of the things I've learnt about myself during COVID is I have a very infectious laugh. <laughs> and so we'll do a, a screen of 50 people and I'll say, everyone, unmute. You know, as long as you're not naked, switch the, the video camera on. And when you're laughing with 50 other people for a minute. Contagious. The hormones flow and people feel yes. good. But I always open with, yeah, particularly in the more conservative groups, ugh, let your inhibitions go, just give this give this a try.
0: So that is laughter yoga because I did want to ask that before. So you just yeah, get people my, to start laughing and then probably by nature of forcing the laugh they can't stop
1: uh, yeah, My guru on this is a woman called Rosbin Musha. Okay. who actually teaches a course on laughter and well-being at La Trove University. Mm. And she'll let you do, in fact, she rang me up um, from Cairns when we were in lockdown and Sydney was in lockdown. And she said, look, do you want me to do a laughter yoga session for everyone? Well, of course, by the time she delivered it four days later, she was on lockdown as well. Mm. So, so with Roz, she actually spends 20 minutes and she'll get you to do all sorts of optimism exercises, um, but what I've adopted, just as you've adapted, um, you know, gratitude practices, is just one minute. And we were doing an event the other day. We had um, Fred uh, Luckin, uh, Fred Luskin, who's the expert on forgiveness, teaches at the Stanford Medical mm. School, and really, I mean, he's a lovely guy, but it's a serious meeting, and a whole lot of people on the screen had teenagers and children on. And gradually, you know, I'm seeing orange hats go on and orange scarves being put onto their parents. And this 12-year-old who's attended a number of our events um, said, oh, Mr. Pertin, aren't we going to have some laughter? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the young leading the yeah. older, um, there's this hunger to end our meetings with, with a one minute of just complete joy. And um, the other thing we sometimes end, with one thing we haven't talked about in the optimism and the innovation space is the value of meditation. Mm. And one of the things I've been doing, we did a, a couple of really big events. We did a COVID vigil um, last week. On Tuesday, we we're going to do a gratitude um, event. Um, I've been uh, doing the compassion meditation, mm. you know, which is thousands of years old from India. But it's you, you, and again, it's, it's your design thinking. Mm. Now you start with imagine someone you love you know, conjure up that vision and send them, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, Mm -hmm. may you be loved, and then you go through until you reach someone that you actually hate.
0: Yes, this is so powerful I actually learned this technique at a Tony Robbins event but it, is, but it is that It's like it's giving them love So it's you giving love to an enemy Or someone that you're a bit frustrated at I have, I think that's one of the most Freeing exercises you can ever do I'll skip that well, one to The that really interesting one
1: was I, I spoke at a conference in Adelaide When we could still travel mm. And it was a blokey sort of conference um, you know, Even the ladies were a bit blokey and, yeah. and you know, I talked about meditation and they said, and I did a one-minute meditation in the mi- mi- middle of my speech, bit of a risk always letting people drift off in the middle of your speech. Yeah. And they said, look, would you do that again half an hour before the start of the conference tomorrow morning? And I, we expected maybe 10 or 15 of the uh, 120 to come along. Everyone was in the room at 8.30. We did exactly that meditation. But do you know what brought tears to people's eyes? It's when we did the now look at yourself in the mirror and say to yourself, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I be loved. And to see these big men, you know, several with tears in their eyes at that point, you know, that that notion of self-love Self-compassion, you know, people think it's ridiculous and and yet it's the fundamental, you can't, you know, with you with your children, you can't love them unless you love yourself.
0: Yeah. Oh, so many good tips here. I think I I want to actually wrap this up on that because you have just mentioned there some of the great events that you have been running. So if anyone is listening to this, Um, who's tuning in live or is listening to us post, there are some fabulous lunch and learns in particular that the Centre for Optimism run and that Victor often hosts with some great guests I did see one the other day, actually it looked amazing, which was about forgiveness and optimism. Yeah. So do you want to just give a little shout out to some of those, how people can join, get involved in the centre if they're keen or reach out yeah, to you? Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's, look, you know, all they need to do is Google the Centre for Optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can use American or Australian spelling, it'll, it'll come up. Um, and there's a free um, membership, you know, just for news and alerts. Um, Of course, people want to to have a paid membership. That's even better, or a corporate membership. Mm -hmm. And some of the examples of the events that we do, the Nelson Mandela Youth Leadership Summit last week, Um, yesterday um, with the Professional Women's Network partnered on the start of the autumn season in Europe. Um, On Tuesday, we're going to do um, Gratitude. Um, and optimism for World Gratitude Day and World Peace Day. And then we'll partner later in the afternoon with Calm in the City for meditation. Um, We're going to be doing another event with the water industry on young water leaders. Mm. Um, And, look, for anyone listening in, you know, particularly if you're a not-for-profit, you know, doing good work in the community, you know, we'll just come for free, do a workshop with you. We're doing one um, for Asperger's Victoria on Monday, you know, as you can imagine, you know, the stresses of parents and carers in that space and, you know, you referred to the one we did the other day um, with Andrew Weir, you know, who wrote the book Recovery.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, well, who joined us on that but Paul Bailey, wow. who was the head of Fiji Infrastructure mm-hmm. and arrived in Fiji and two days later a hurricane knocked down 400 schools So imagine being in the reconstruction of that. And then to top it off, after he'd finished there, he went off to the British Virgin Islands to head up their recovery after they were hit by two hurricanes, which knocked out everything on the islands. And you know the funny thing, the story he told, Fiona, you'll like this, again, design thinking, that he went out and consulted with the people. He drove around, he walked around. What did the people want built first? Was it a power station? Was it water recycling? Was it sewage? Church. No, it was a sports stadium.
0: Sports, same thing.
1: <laughs> and why? Love it. Because the young people' yeah, their, their leg up in life comes from winning a scholarship to an American university mm. for sports. So the people were thinking about the future of their young people by making sure that there was a stadium that let the kids show off their wares and open them to the world, just as you do, Fiona.
0: It's a beautiful close there. Thank you so much for your time today, Victor. We have covered so much ground. Um, you know how companies can benefit from this influencing government, but I think like my my biggest takeaway from all of this is the individual contribution and how how each person and these really practical ways of bringing more optimism into your own life, into your family's life with your colleagues, and then becoming a you know a champion of optimism. Um, lots of different ways to do that. So. Well done on the awesome work that you're doing. It's so important, more so now than ever. And, um, yeah, we look forward to continuing to follow your story.
1: Well, you are completely adopted into the optimism family and movement. I call myself a radical optimist. Right. What sort of optimist are you, Fiona? I
0: think I'm a radical optimist, yeah. Yeah. Good. You're pretty close. Yep.
1: So, all of you radical optimists, we want you to join up with us in the radical optimism movement. And Fiona is the vice president. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's more laughter yoga every morning.
1: I love it.
0: Shall we end with some laughter? Yes, let's end with some laughter. Let's do 30
1: seconds of laughter. Ready? (laughs) One, two, three. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my god you do the most contagious <laughs> so
1: everyone we hope you've laughed along with us and, and we hope you join us on another time to laugh with the owner and her wonderful guests
0: oh my god so good thank you victor the best <laughs> thanks everyone thanks